This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushduni. Copyright 1961, Dorothy Rushduni and the Rushduni Irrevocable Trust. Calcedon, Ross House Books. Chapter 7. The Bible in the Christian School The teaching of the Bible in the Christian school as its basic religious and cultural premise can be wholly or partially neutralised if certain non-biblical presuppositions govern the teaching. The Bible, indeed, has often been an alien book in the Church precisely because so many presuppositions in the Churchman place a standing barrier between himself and the Scriptures. Again, it is possible to be drawn to biblical data with alien presuppositions in mind. Van Til has excellently illustrated this in Paul at Athens. The philosophers were at first drawn to Paul's statements concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw it in the context of their philosophy, a world of ultimate chance, yet capable of revealing strains and new potentialities. Perhaps this report of a resurrection at Jerusalem indicated a new potentiality of, and the next development in, man. Heard, however, in the context of the eternal decree, the sovereign God, and Christ the judge of all men, this same data was suddenly hopelessly uninteresting. To the Stoics and Epicureans who heard Paul, this doctrine was hostile to the basic egocentricity of their philosophies, and their concept of the autonomy of man. For them, God had to be the unknown or unknowable. Accordingly, they could not hear a God so clearly known and so definitely sovereign. Hellenic and modern philosophical presuppositions all too often colour man's approach to Scripture. But this is not all. One of the most prevalent of presuppositions in biblical teaching is moralism, which reduces biblical faith from religious to moralistic dimensions. This is especially prevalent in the teaching of children. The non-Christian is incurably moralistic and his insistence on viewing life moralistically gives the Christian an illusory and dangerous common ground. But Christianity is fundamentally anti-moralistic but not anti-moral of course. And this constituted Paul's offence in that he pointed up this contrast. For scripture, the godly man is the saved man, not the self-consciously good man. It is not a contrast between moral and immoral, but between godly and ungodly, holy and wicked. And the moral man, as witness the Pharisees, can epitomise ungodliness. Yet the moralistic construction creeps into Christian thinking. Even so fine a book as Voss's Child's Story Bible, and it is without equal, has an occasional trace of this. Quote, The demons hate everything that is good. Most of all they hate God. And I do not want us to love him, or to be good, and to go to live with him in heaven after we die. End quote. But, if goodness is a matter of hatred and fear of hell, It can only be because it is a threat to hell's existence 
and a means to God, hardly a Christian doctrine. Not goodness itself, but holiness is the issue, a righteousness which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Satan is not concerned with our moral wickedness, but our spiritual wickedness. This is the biblical concept. The summons is, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Our righteousness and morality are not for our sakes or for our satisfaction in virtue, but for the Lord's sake and his ends and our fellowship with him. Thus, without antinomianism, Scripture sees the sins of the saints from this religious rather than moralistic perspective. Notice Shimei's denunciation of David as a bloody man, 2 Samuel 16.7, for which Shimei stood self-condemned. But God, in so different a context and in fundamental love toward and respect for David, expressed a similar opinion. 1 Chronicles 28.3 Perhaps no better instance of this basic problem can be cited than the story of Rahab, Joshua 2. The evasiveness with which many theologians handle this narrative testifies to the moralism of their faith. Rahab had a choice to make. One, she could tell the truth and surrender the spies, two godly men, to death. Two, she could lie and save their lives. This is the kind of situation the moralist hates and refuses to accept. Either course involves some evil. However, the moralist seeks to deny it. The question is, which is the lesser of two evils? Our choices are rarely black and white ones. We rarely have the luxury of an absolute choice. But we do have the continual opportunity to make decisions in terms of an absolute faith, however grey the immediate situation. This faith Rahab had, whether she lied or not, was relatively unimportant as compared to the lives of two godly men. She lied and saved their lives. For this, James singled her out, together with Abraham, as an instance of vital faith, a faith which was not mere opinion, but a matter of life and action. James 2.25 Again, Hebrews 11.31 singled this same act as an instance of true faith. It is useless evasion to try to abstract something from the fact as praiseworthy while condemning her for the lie and a violation of the unity of life. Rahab clearly lied, but her lie represented a moral choice as against sending two godly men to death, and for this she became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 5. For the moralist, it is important that he stand in his own self righteousness, and Rahab's alternative is intolerable because it makes some kind of sin inescapable at times. For the godly man, who stands not in his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, his own purity is not the essence of the matter, but that God's will be done. And God, in this situation, certainly willed that the lives of the spies be saved, not that the individual come forth able to say, I never tell a lie. But we are told by the moralist, if Rahab had told the truth, God would have been bound to honour her integrity and deliver her and the spies, and Rahab had an obligation to tell the truth, irrespective of the consequences. Several fallacies, characteristic of moralism, are involved here. 
One, moral choice, it is held, involves a simple, uncomplicated, rational issue. Two, it is always a choice between absolute right and wrong. Three, the central issue is always the preservation of the individual's moral purity rather than a transcendent factor. Four, poetic justice is always operative, virtue is always rescued and rewarded, and truth always triumphant. But this is not biblical Christianity, but 18th century deism with a strong dash of Spencer's fairy queen. Paul could say, echoing the psalmist, Psalm 44.22, quote, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, end quote, Romans 8.26. That scripture affirms an ultimate triumph of the godly, as differentiated from the moral, is beyond question, but it does not affirm the concept of poetic justice. We cannot allow so radical a falsification of the faith to be projected onto Scripture. The doctrine of poetic justice, in effect, requires a rewriting of Scripture, history and literature. An instance of the latter is Nahum Tate's revision of King Lear about 1680, which was then the acting version until 1823, about 150 years. Tate had Lear triumphant and, in Edgar's concluding words, affirmed the successfulness of, quote, truth and virtue, end quote. He felt it morally necessary to make, quote, the tale conclude in a success to the innocent, distressed persons, end quote, and gave poetic justice full sway. Jesus answered an early version of the same concept, plainly and bluntly, quote, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 1-5 The book of Job is again an answer to a similar demand for poetic justice, which is patently anti-biblical. Again, We cannot allow teachers or students to project modern secularism onto the Bible. Religious secularism involves a schizophrenic division of life so that only a limited area is reserved for religious activity. The basic unity of life is broken. As anyone who has been a missionary can testify, unsophisticated pagans are unable to understand the radical division in the Western Christian's life between religion and life between the sacred and the secular, to accept the modern worldview as normal and then attempt to understand biblical law and the prophetic burden, for example, is an impossibility. Furthermore, it is necessary to know biblical faith and doctrine and its basic presuppositions. If God be not truly God in our philosophy and thinking, then man ceases to be man and reality disappears into a nebulous relativity. 
facts do not exist in themselves as though they were self-created and self-existent, but they exist because created and sustained by the will of God and have no meaning apart from him who is the starting point of all knowledge. In affirming this, we do not say that the Bible is to be used as a source book in biology or to replace a paleontological study in Africa. As Van Tilla stated it, quote, The Bible does not claim to offer a rival theory that may or may not be true. It claims to have the truth about all facts, end quote. Thus, it is not claimed that one should go to the scriptures instead of Africa. Rather, it is claimed that no fact can be truly known, nor its existence even posited, without the light of scripture, without the God of the Bible and the revelation therein given. Another point is fundamental. The Bible must be taught in terms of its claimed ramifications, which are far-reaching. The law, for example, is particular and principal. Scripture gives us examples of this, as witness the law regarding the muzzling of the ox, Deuteronomy 25, 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 following, 1 Timothy 5, 18. 1. A humane treatment of the ox is called for. The ox deserves a portion of the grain he has helped tread out. By this elementary statement, true and necessary, a broader principle is asserted. If the ox must be rewarded, how much more so man? 2. Thus it follows that, quote, He that ploweth ought to plough in hope, and he that thresheth ought to thresh in hope of partaking. End quote. 1 Corinthians 9.10, Revised Version. A principle is asserted with regards to labour in general and the ministry in particular. 3. Accordingly, quote, the labourer is worthy of his hire, end quote, 1 Timothy 5.18. 4. Thus, thus a principle regarding labour and remuneration and is definitely asserted and made all the more binding because it is even applicable in terms of animal labour, that is, on a subhuman level. Another instance of such usage is Ecclesiastes 10.8 Whosoever breaketh through a fence, hedge, a serpent shall bite him. End quote. Here was a matter of observation. Hedges were the usual places for serpents and to break through a boundary hedge was to run very heavy risk of snake bite. Thus, to break a hedge fence was to bring unexpected judgment on oneself. Man, by breaking the fence of law around the tree in Eden, brought the serpent and death upon himself. Life is strictly circumscribed by God's law. Never for a moment can we escape from the workings of his immutable decrees. Every hedge or wall has its serpent. Again, it must be realized that biblical faith and doctrine are never abstractions. Invaluable as creeds and catechisms are, it must always be remembered that the Bible never gives us an abstraction, but an account of life, an incarnation of doctrine, so to speak. It defines faith, for example, in terms of what is believed in specific situations and in terms of the lives of men. Abraham believed God, said Amen to God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. It was faith in the living God in terms of the trying context of life, not an abstract assent to a theoretical concept. 
Invaluable as all formularies are, they have value only as they point us to the text of Scripture and an understanding of it. Thus, ultimately, the Bible in the school must stand, as in the church, as its own interpreter. Quote, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. End quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.